from Sullivan Street to Sullivan County, from Grand Island to Staten Island, all across the five boroughs and New York State. It's 5 p.m. on Wednesday, and so it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics, and people of New York City and New York State. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from GothamGazette.com. Jarrett, good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm mixed, as you might be able to tell from my voice, a little bit under the weather, but doing okay and uh, trying to sprint to the finish line here of another busy week and, of course, uh, quite a busy and interesting year. And we are hurtling towards sort of the wrap-up of our Agenda 2019 work as we look ahead, and today's show is obviously part of that, and we've published a couple of, um, I think, important pieces this week looking at budget issues. Uh, we had a big, lengthy piece at Gotham Gazette about city and state budget issues to know about and watch in 2019, and you had a really good uh, city budget piece as well. Yeah, and I think especially your piece, really important to remember that all of the progressive and other policy ideas you've been talking about from from the 2018 election, primary, general, the first few weeks of this series, been where we've talked about health, we've talked about housing, criminal justice, uh, all of that really obviously rests on the question of how the state is going to pay for, for any of that, and particularly a lot of other big ticket items like NYCHA, like the MTA, all of that swirling around the questions about the budget, congestion pricing, potential for property tax reform, how the SALT uh, changes to federal taxes are going to affect local and state taxation. Boring stuff to talk about, not the kind of thing that dry, drives people out into the streets uh, to protest or discuss, which is obviously a valid part of democracy, but an important uh, undergirding to everything we're talking about. Well, as soon as, you know, the city or the state faces real budget crunching and things like have to be, uh, you know, services are reduced or there's announcements to close a library or a firehouse or something. I mean, that gets people worked up and into the streets and rallying at City Hall and things like that. So, you know, these things have very real uh, ramifications. And when we look at the budget pictures for the city and the state, I mean, a lot of that is, okay, what are the things that elected officials, advocates, service providers, experts, and others think are important and, you know, is the money there to afford it. We've had quite a stretch here in New York City where the budget has been growing. Mayor de Blasio has had a very, you have to sort of say just fortunate. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not crazy about using the word lucky, but a very fortunate streak. You know, he came in well after the Great Recession and after things had stabilized and we've seen just a continued economic growth with New York City doing so much better than most places, even within the state. And that means the state budget picture has been nowhere near as rosy as the city's. And that's where we've seen, of course, and we'll probably see again, some conflict between the governor and the mayor about who's paying for what. And we'll be talking actually to a man who spends his days looking at the finances, mainly of New York City. That's uh, Comptroller Scott Stringer. We'll be having him on just a few moments. And then we'll hear from Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, who was on our podcast much earlier in the year. And she'll be talking about the agenda for 2019. And we heard some of that agenda in recent days from the governor himself making a kind of a rare table setting speech, looking his first hundred days, invoking the memory of former governor and president, FDR, um, and listing some of the policy ideas that we knew were going to be there and, and talking about where his areas of emphasis were going to be. 
it's such a long list. I'm almost, you know, I'm hesitant sometimes to talk about it because I always wind up leaving something out. We really saw with the governor giving this speech, you know, him wanting to get out ahead of the new year and the legislative session and even preview his state of the state speech, which will be a much more robust speech. It'll include his executive budget presentation and it'll be a little bit more about sort of how's the state doing and where it's been and, you know, that type of thing that a state of the state speech includes. But he was very sort of talking the FDR in the moment and Trump stuff and then really just going through kind of a a lengthy list of policies that are his legislative agenda. Everything, you know, from things we talked about multiple times on this show, of course, like the Reproductive Health Act and gun control, you know, but he also for the first time also mentioned some other things like legalizing recreational marijuana and some sort of New York Green New Deal, uh, which, you know, on a lot of these things, we need to see a lot more uh, detail from the governor. Let's get into some details on some of the key policy issues of the day, though, with our first guest. We have on the line City Comptroller Scott Stringer. Comptroller Stringer, welcome to Max and Murphy. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. So uh, before we get a bit into your latest uh, report on the city budget picture, uh, your your recent uh recently released affordable housing plan, and we definitely want to get into those. You were, you were involved in this state pay commission panel, and I just, uh, this has sort of been part of a controversy now. There's a, there's a lot of consternation over this. Can you just um, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, where you landed on recommending pay raises for state legislators and the uh, executive branch uh, commissioners, and then attaching reforms to those which are limits on outside income for legislators and also the elimination of some uh, committee stipends that have long been discussed as as nothing uh, short of sort of uh, ways to bolster that that salary. Well, I was one of the four members on the pay commission and my belief going into those discussions was that legislators have worked very, very hard, most of them full-time, for part-time pay, and they hadn't had a raise for 20 years, and that's not good for democracy. That means you can't attract people who who want to do public service but can't afford that, especially with kids. As a former member of the legislature, I know how exciting it is to be on the floor of the assembly, debate the bills, work for your constituents back home. I have great respect for legislators in both the assembly and the Senate, so I believe that they needed a raise. but. In getting a raise, we also have to go with the times, and there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, it was time to limit outside income in the legislature, go to the congressional model, because that would justify a full-time pay raise. And in eliminating stipends, well, that's that's also going the way of the dinosaur. It's just not a way to govern in a legislative body. Uh, you have very few stipends or lulus around the country and other legislatures. So the commission looked at putting in place needed reforms, but also giving the kind of raise that is commensurate, commensurate with the hard work that legislators do. And anything you want to say to to some of those legislators led by the assembly speaker who's saying that the commission uh, overstepped its its bounds by putting these attaching these reforms to the to the recommendations? Well, this commission was not my idea. It was the speaker's idea. He wanted this commission. He wanted us to serve on it. But we never were going to be a rubber stamp for the speaker. We were going to be a 
we were going to be advocates for a legislature that hadn't had a raise in 20 years. I think we met that standard. I'm proud of the work that we did. I think it was critical to get a pay raise done before this commission. Uh, this was tried for 20 years, and the legislators did not receive a raise at the end of the day. The, the, the work of the commission at the end of the day, in, in my view, did we make everybody happy? No. Did we make everybody unhappy? No. I do think new legislators, the next generation, who are making uh, very little money for many, many years given the, the seniority system, I think it, we made their lives and their ability to serve their constituents a lot better. So, Comptroller, let's talk about housing, and let's start first with the plan that's been on the table for it's almost five years now in the city. That's the Mayor's uh, Housing New York plan. It started at 200,000 units. It's now 300,000. Um, it's uh, financed and completed many tens of thousands of units. What is your view of the Mayor's plan and what it's accomplished so far, good, bad, and neutral? Well, I give the Mayor great credit for putting his money where his mouth is. He has talked about and is implementing a very ambitious housing plan for New York City. I think it's going to make a difference in people's lives. I do think that there's room for improvement within this plan. And let me start out by just reminding people, you know, the government, city government has always, over the last 50, 60, 70 years, has always been involved in developing big, large programs for true affordable housing and for low-income housing. In the 1930s, Mayor LaGuardia built public housing. Uh, in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, whether it was Wagner and Lindsay and, and the state, we created the Michelama Housing Program, a program that helped hundreds of thousands of people. And it Koch returned land to the people and buildings to community-based organizations to build uh, the low-income housing we needed in places like the Bronx through a very ambitious housing plan. The mayor's housing plan does rely on for-profit developers for the most part to build this housing. And what we found through his rezonings in this housing program is yes, housing was being built for people who make over $155,000, families at that income range, families that make up to 75000 in that income range. And what was missing in this plan was the lack of housing production for the poorest New Yorkers, the people making under $30,000 a year. The 580,000 rent-challenged people, people in extreme housing stress, uh, people making less than 47,000, people who were paying 50% income to rent, overcrowded apartments, people had been in a shelter. This, this housing we are not building. And so I've proposed that the rest of the mayor's housing plan, 85,000 units, uh, get built for the people who need it the most because we are seeing exploding homeless costs. We now have a budget for homeless services. We went from $1.4 billion at the beginning of the mayor's term. We're spending $2.9 billion with house, warehousing people in commercial hotels. For God's sakes, why don't we just build affordable, low-income housing like we used to, to meet the needs of the people who are homeless, children who are just living in homeless shelters. It's a disgrace, and I want to shift the housing to meet the needs of the lowest-income people. 
So uh, what the mayor has said to critics who have made the same argument about his plan, that it, it should shift to meet the need at the lower end of the economic ladder, is that the costs of doing that are so much higher that you would really have to reduce, for the budget that he proposed, reduce the number of units built. It's simple math. You propose instead to build the same number of units, devote them uh almost exclusively to, to very lower income people, and to find new revenue, quite a bit of it, uh, about $500 million all told a year. And talk about your method for doing that. Well, he, well the mayor's right. I, I, I do agree that you can't just talk about building more housing for the poorest people in the city without a plan to pay for it. And so as mayor, he actually has to watch the bottom line and he has to take into consideration what we can afford. So the program that I released, Housing We Need, it's a New York you know, housing for the people we need. My proposal is very simple. We should refocus remaining the remaining 85,000 units under his plan, shift to the lowest income New Yorkers. We've already built housing in other income brackets. We should triple the number of housing units set aside for homeless New Yorkers to 15% and make sure we meet that goal every year. And most importantly, to pay for it, we should eliminate the mortgage recording tax and replace it with a progressive real property transfer tax. In 2016, guys, over 80% of Manhattan condos over $5 million were paid in all cash. So the MRT is used only when you're a middle-class person and you take out a mortgage. By eliminating that for working families, we're going to save $5,700 on home purchases, and we're going to be able to raise the real property transfer tax to create a fund of $500 million, and that's what we have to do. That's the crux of our financial plan. You raise the RPTT, you keep the state portion of it for transit and for other housing needs, you eliminate a piece of it, and then ramp up for those expensive all-cash buyers, people from around the world who want to park money in New York, you got to get money from them because they're parking money in the biggest, safest city in the world. The RPTT is used in other world cities, but what they're charging these all-cash buyers of over $5 million an apartment, they're charging them 25%. London's charging them 15%. Vancouver's at 20%. New York just charges 4% tax on those purchases. That's ridiculous. I want to move it up to 8%, which would be well below other international cities that is competing for this housing market. And that would give us the revolving fund that we could put $370 million into a revolving fund to build affordable housing, the real affordable housing we need, and also $120 million a year operating fund. So we would maintain those buildings so they wouldn't fall in disrepair uh, like the NYCHA development. So this is something that is new. I think we're picking up tremendous support. We need legislative action in Albany to do this, but now we have a Democratic Senate. It's a new day in Albany, and I'm very confident that as we go forward, we're picking up support for this plan. We want to build housing for the middle class. We're doing that. We want to build housing for different income levels. We're doing that. But the biggest need is the 580,000 people who are seriously rent-challenged. If we do not start providing housing for these working New Yorkers, cooks, waiters, taxi drivers, the heart and soul of the city, the people who take care of our grandparents and parents, then we are going to be a very different city. And we're not going to be able to afford the exploding uh, cost of shelter 
that we're seeing throughout our city. So um, you threw a lot of detail out there. Some of it well, that's te- what technical. Do. No, no, it's, very good. I just want to make sure. Is about data. Absolutely. So I would we're, never come on the show <laughs> without giving it all to you. We're, we're, we love the detail. Uh, we're all about, about that. But I just want to remind listeners that if they want to be able to read so they didn't have to get all that, they can uh-huh. both Gotham Gazette and City Limits covered your announcement of the yes. policy. And then, of course, um, you have a website where you post uh, announcements like that as well. So let me ask you about this proposal. You said uh, you have some hope that the things that would need to go through the state legislature um, it would because there's now Democratic control or there will be in a, in a couple of weeks of, of state government. Who who would be against this plan? Are, are there forces that this would seem very um, uh, uh, seem to have a negative impact to? You know, do you expect sort of if you're lobbying for it, who might come out to lobby against it? And then in that same discussion, um, who do you need to get behind this? I mean, is this something where you need the mayor's buy in or are you going to try to just sort of move it ahead without him? Look, I take the mayor at his word. He has said that he he has an intention to shift the income levels of his housing plan. He has said that there's issues related to financing. Do we have enough money? And that's why in our office we went to work trying to think of a way to generate the hundreds of millions of dollars, basically increasing the capital housing capital budget by 60%. You know, how would we accomplish that? Well, when you look at tax reform and progressive tax which is something that we need to take a look at overall, well, here's the solution. We just raised the RPTT as a way of creating this fund for affordable housing. We need to invest in housing. If we don't do it, we're going to pay much bigger prices later on. So who would be against it? Well, we'll see. You know, listen, we'll, we'll see. I mean, the, you know, David Jones from the Community Service Society is so excited about this plan, he can't believe someone hadn't thought about it before. Uh, I met with housing advocates, people who are professionals in this business, and there was a genuine excitement in the room about how we fund the housing we need. Uh, the People praise the mayor's housing plan, but we know there's a critical missing gap here. It's to fund housing for the people who are working. Uh, 30% of people in shelters work, but they can't find an affordable apartment. And that means immigrants who struggle to stay here will not be able to. Uh, Kids who want to live in New York, that's their dream. The entrance fee of the city is becoming a $1 million condo. They're not going to be able to stay here. And, you know, the people who I grew up with, the people back in the day, uh, the parents of that generation who you know, who were there when the city was on the edge of bankruptcy, when there were 2,000 murders a year. These are folks who lived in public housing and Mitchellama housing. They built our city. They didn't run out of here when the going got tough. They actually doubled down and said, we're going to bring New York through the crisis of that generation. They're the ones now who are 70, 80 years old. They're the ones who are being pushed out of the city. It's just wrong. And we have to recognize that it's wrong. You shouldn't be penalized for making less money than somebody else. And that's what we're doing here. New York is being defined by who can afford it. And I don't want to see that anymore. So let's create a bold housing program. Let's go right to progressive taxation to help the most vulnerable in our city. And let's own it. Let's be proud of it. Let's march to Albany and say, here's the housing we need. 
You're listening to Max and Murphy. We're talking to Comptroller Scott Stringer. If you want to ask a question of the Comptroller, please call in at 212-209-2877. Comptroller Stringer, let's turn to the budget and the economy. Obviously, the funding for this housing plan depends on the real estate market, which seems always to be ferocious in in New York. But it does raise the question, as has been raised, talking about the budget writ large. What is the immediate economic future of the city? What are the chances for a downturn? and how well-braced is city government and the city budget for what that would mean to to revenues and to some of the spending that's built up. What is your outlook on that? We have not yet. uh, You know, we will do a full budget analysis uh, once the mayor releases his budget, and we're constantly monitoring the finances of the city. What I said last year is probably true this year. Uh, We we have been a city that has far exceeded any expectation through, you know, through the recession, and we're still in a recovery, but things are slowing. You know, there's the uncertainty in Washington with the Trump administration. Uh, I am not confident that that's an administration that works for New Yorkers. The state and local tax deductibility, I think we will see that hurting us as a city. We also just you know, the recovery goes for a long time. We wonder when that's stopping. We're concerned about the stock market and other indicators. There's no cause for alarm if we're prudent now. And I've said to the mayor and the city council, you have to put more money away for a rainy day. Uh, I, I like where we're going, but we're not totally where we were uh, 10 years ago. I'd like us to get up to 12% of revenue, maybe even more, to protect us from, God forbid, the next big storm, some unforeseen attack, or uh, an economy that is slowed. And so I'm going to continue to push and prod the administration to make sure that we're putting away enough money for the future, because that's what we have to do in, in times of difficulty. We've, we've been looking ahead, of course, to 2019 at both the state and the city level, and obviously the state budget comes before the next city budget and influences it quite a bit. As you look ahead to 2019 and this new Democratic Day in Albany uh, and some of the priorities that are being discussed, but also uh, you know, this major issue of funding the MTA, are there certain things that concern you? Um, the governor partly ran on a, on a promise to make New York City pay more for the MTA. He had some Democratic state Senate candidates sign a pledge uh, saying so. Um, how much does that concern you? Any other concerns as you look ahead to the, to the Democratic takeover in, in Albany? I think we have to be prudent and make smart decisions. We have to take the politics out of the budget process, especially that relates to the city and the state, because we have enormous challenges. First and foremost is public transportation. We have a proposal for a $40 billion makeover uh, with a congestion pricing plan. Uh, That only gets you so far, so we're going to have to look at other revenue to make up the difference. Our economy and our city is built on the subway grid, and we need to modernize our buses. It's the way we build the economy. It's the way we create wealth beyond the Midtown Manhattan Business District. All hands on deck here. So I want us to have a relationship with those new state senators from New York City and Long Island and make the case to Long Island as well that, look, a lot of their future of, of, of the suburbs is in large part because of the jobs in New York City, and we should work together to create a plan for all. We have a call. We have time for a quick question for the comptroller. Go ahead with your question. Uh, yes. Hi. I'd like to talk about ways of um, actually capturing uh, money 
tax uh, tax dollars that could jet, could be directed towards the MTA and the housing, and that's called tax recapture. Any property that's on the built or near the subways, like the Second Avenue subway, which is benefiting the landlords and the apartments and the condos and everything. Um, retail, uh, it's booming there on Second Avenue. I've, I've been there a number of times. And there's a way simply to recapture where if you own a property and it's, you know, two blocks from the subway or a block from the subway or on Second Avenue, it's right okay. on the subway. I think we got it. Yeah, um, so that's so, yeah, good question. So what, what, do you, what do you think about that idea of value capture? Yeah, I would, I would be careful. I mean, I, I think that could end up hurting New York City in terms of tax revenue. But it's an idea that, that people are talking about. And look, I want to encourage everybody to come up with new creative ways to fund the system. I'm not sure that's the future, but I do credit people for coming up with ideas, whether it's congestion pricing or commuter tax or a bond act or just, you know, different enhancements, you know, just just doing large projects on time and on budget uh, goes a long way to reducing costs and overhead. So we just got another couple minutes with you, Controller Stringer. I wanted to ask you uh, where you're at right now about the deal to bring Amazon to Queens. I know you've been critical of the process, but in terms of actually concrete, you know, next steps or or where this goes, what do you want to see? Do you want to see somehow some tweaks to the deal or would you rather Amazon not come to the city at all? First of all, I I thought that the process of engagement with Amazon was simply outrageous and foolhardy. The mayor in particular should know that when you have a proposal of this size in a community that has already been overrun by development like Long Island City, and when you have the promise of all these jobs in exchange for billions of dollars in tax benefits, you obviously concern New Yorkers are going to ask questions. What's frustrating is that there's no venue to have those questions answered because Amazon did not have to go through a land use review process. Amazon did not have to be accountable before a deal was made. And I just think it's it's not the way we do business in our city. I don't think it helps Amazon. It certainly doesn't help the community. And there's a real fundamental question about how much this deal was worth and what are we really getting? I would caution people to remember the wild times of stadium expansion. You know, from like the year 2000 to 2012, I think we built 27 stadiums around the country. Cities poured hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to these sport teams because they felt that their financial future was tied to a big, large stadium. And then... We now know, years later, that, no, those stadiums didn't produce jobs or create the kind of economic activity people were hoping for. But sometimes government doesn't stop. They make the same mistake over and over again. So now we went away from stadiums, and then there was the casino craze. Let's have a casino in every locality, upstate, big cities, and that'll generate revenue for the things we need. And these casinos have not produced what was projected. So in our last... I I worry about these big deals in the sense that we certainly want those jobs, we need those jobs, but we also need to balance some of our tax policy with reality. I mean, 
you know, REAP and ICAP, the $1.3 billion that they were able to get as of right uh, through these subsidy programs. These subsidy programs may be outdated. They were used in the 70s and 80s because we wanted to attract business beyond Manhattan, but that doesn't seem to be a problem today. New Yorkers have the right to ask these tough questions, and that's why as controller I've asked those questions because that's my job. I'm not supposed to go along to get along. I'm supposed to raise these issues, and I have, and I'm going to continue to do so, and we're, we're issuing requests for information. We're talking to the agencies. I want EDC to respond to a list of questions that I just sent them, and this will be an ongoing discussion. Can you tell us in our last few seconds here an example of, of those questions that you sent to EDC? Well, the question is, what was the decision-making process here? What exactly do these benefits cost the city? What was the benefit discussion? These are issues that New Yorkers on the street are saying. You know, there's a lot of people who want Amazon to be in New York City. They support that somewhat, and then you ask them, well, what was the price we're willing to pay? And that's where there's a legitimate issue that New Yorkers want to know. But there was no review process. There was no discussion. And quite frankly, you know, the the city council hearings are, are interesting, but it's not the same as a review process where there was a discussion with the local community. There was, a, you know, the borough president, the council, the city planning commission. You know, the reason we have a robust land use process is because we make proposals better and sometimes we don't support them, but sometimes we do. And as a former borough president, I found that even contentious developments projects or proposals, even as large as Amazon, when you engage the community, when you engage the residents of Long Island City and you have a discussion, the outcome is better. Why we didn't do it this way, I don't know what leadership was afraid of, but I would say to the mayor, it would have been better to go to Long Island City, stand in front of a thousand people and argue it out if this is what you believe was best for the city. People would have respected him, they would have understood it, and they would have asked the same tough question. And that it was a big failure on our city. So I hate when serious policy programs devolve into idle political speculation, but let's do that anyway. Uh, the obligatory question, obviously, when you make pronouncements about housing or Amazon or anything else, uh, because of people like Ben and I, it's going to be sometimes cast in the lens of you being a potential candidate for mayor. Um, are you going to run for mayor? And uh, if so, when will you announce it officially on our program? <laughs> I wouldn't want to announce it anywhere else. Of course. Uh, but I'll probably invite Mark you to that something. Down. I'll probably invite you to something. Uh, in all seriousness, there is so much work that I have to do as controller, and a lot of what I do is worry about the future economy of the city, worry about working people, uh, whether that's housing or economic development. It's all the purview of being controller. And one of the reasons why I've, I've enjoyed this role is because we're making a difference every day for people. Sometimes I got to raise the tough issues, whether it's a pay commission or a housing plan that takes on uh, assumptions by the mayor or criti- being critical that there's no community input or community-based planning. This is all part of, of the job I do. So I'm very excited about what I'm doing now. You know, term limits create speculation. And I would rather focus on the last couple of years I have as controller or I have big plans for the next three years in this job. 
Well, it does not surprise us to hear you give that answer, but we will stay tuned for further discussion, of course, of that, but also the work you're doing uh, over those next couple of years. City Comptroller Scott Stringer, thanks for joining us here on WBAI. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio coming to you from Brooklyn. Here with my co-host, Ben Max of GothamGazette.com. I'm Jared Murphy from CityLimits.org, and we've just been listening to City Comptroller Scott Stringer talking about uh, raises for state legislators, talking about his proposal on housing, the city budget, Amazon, and more. And Ben, what was striking to me about the housing conversation, which was the chief reason we brought the Comptroller on, was for many years that there has been this discussion of, you know, do you build as many units as the mayor wanted? Do you build fewer units for poorer people? Um, and then the related question of whether we need to simply just build a lot more housing to solve the housing crisis or whether building more more housing actually creates more problems and 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 secondary displacement and issues like that. Stringer's proposal, which you know there will be people who come forward and pick it apart, but it it does sort of cut through that by basically saying that we can build as many units as we were planning for lower income people, and therefore it still is a massive housing plan um, with a a much larger price tag that therefore still meets the goal of just creating a, a vast new supply of housing. So um, I, I understand where Mayor de Blasio is coming from when he says we want to create affordable housing. You know that that affordable is kind of in quotes because you know he what he what is meant by affordable housing in most conversations to regular people is not the sort of definition that the mayor and officials are using. And what they basically mean by affordable housing is housing with some sort of rent regulation. And so the mayor, I, I somewhat understand when he talks about having a housing plan that stratifies a variety of income levels, uh, that we need to create some affordable housing units for sort of lower middle income. I don't know about into middle income, but maybe. Um, but the need in this city seems to clearly be at the lower end, and it just doesn't quite seem that his plan is really targeted the right way. And that has been the critique. And as you said, yes, he's talked about the need. There, there is need up and down the ladder. But the stats do show that the need is most uh, profound for the lowest income groups. And it is difficult for the city to serve those. You know, the, the federal subsidy programs are built around people at higher levels of area median income. And that measure on its own, which people will see in coverage of housing issues, is skewed by the fact that it includes uh, the Long Island counties and some upstate counties and is actually restricted by federal law to be kind of particularly poorly suited to the lowest income neighborhoods of the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens. Um, so the city does face some constraints there. Um, Stringer's plan is a an interesting p- potential workaround, and it's an interesting outgrowth and one we haven't talked about of this change in power in Albany. There might be other reasons why Stringer chose this moment to release the plan. But as he mentioned, the fact that it's a new day, the fact that you have a Democratic-controlled Senate potentially to pass these tax changes to these real estate taxes, the mortgage recording tax and the real property transfer tax uh, to not just fund this program, but a kind of nifty, both politically and from a policy standpoint, second feature of Stringer's plan is it would potentially reduce some of the inequalities in the way real estate transfers are taxed, that basically if you pay cash for a house now, which a tremendous amount of people um, do in the city, especially with very wealthy people buying properties, you do not face the mortgage recording 
tax. Um, if you borrow money for your house, you do. And so it basically punishes people who have to borrow, which obviously tends to be folks of, of moderate to, to lower incomes. So let me say a couple more things, and we're going to be joined uh, in just a few minutes by Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. We're going to talk about the Cuomo administration agenda for 2019 and, and maybe a few other things while we have the Lieutenant Governor back on with us. The you know, hearing the controller talk about having support behind this plan, I, I'm not sure other than, you know, he definitely at his announcement had some local advocates uh, with him, but I'm not sure that I've really seen that much indication at this point. And again, it's December, the new year really gets going, you know, soon, but you know, that there's legislative support for this that'll be necessary. I also think if he and if he somehow convinced the, the mayor to link up with him, although that would create some real tension in terms of credit, uh, uh, you know that that could be powerful in terms of them both going to Albany and saying, "Hey, help us, help us do this." I'm going to adjust my housing plan. The controller came up with some creative ideas for this. You know, I did see some really. He mentioned it some reaction to this plan of that's very creative, very smart. Uh, it's it's kind of amazing. People haven't thought of that before. So I think there's some validity there. Uh, but the question is the political landscape, and part of me has to wonder. Going back to your last question to him, is this sort of just putting this out there so for the next couple of years? he can continue to bang the drum on this while the mayor doesn't really get behind it and it doesn't really happen at Albany and then it's sort of part of his, you know, mayoral campaign. Maybe that's too cynical, uh, but, but you know, it's certainly plausible or, you know, he goes up to Albany, he keeps pushing for this and, and you know, we'll see what happens. One thing, uh, speaking of this plan and some of the other policy issues we've talked about is, especially as we move into the new year, this new session, questions about how much and what the democratically controlled state government will achieve. It's easy to talk about any of these issues in isolation and to look at pros and cons and say, well, of course, that makes sense and is most likely going to pass just a question of when and how. But the fact is, all of these issues are being thrown into the drum and some of them are going to take a higher priority than others. So if this were the only issue on the plate for Albany, I think the political dynamics would be one way. The fact that you're going to have people necessarily trading and bargaining and figuring out what we have just the capacity to talk about in the next few months among criminal justice reform and electoral reform, campaign finance, reproductive rights, eventually rent regs. Um, there is just sort of a sequencing challenge to this and other things. So sizing up the politics, you know, it's not a sort of micro issue. It really is a macro one. And that's something that I think will affect this and, and many of the other ideas we've talked about. And so uh, on Amazon, it was interesting to hear his take again, you know, he wrote, he wrote an op-ed for Gotham Gazette about really questioning these tax incentives. He brought that issue up again. At the same time, you know, at this juncture, he didn't really say much about what he wants moving forward. He was much more looking backward, critical of the process. And I think there's a lot of people who share that criticism. But the key question for critics right now is what next? What now? Do you want to try to put the kibosh on this deal? Do you want to try to alter it in some way? You know, the city council had its first, I believe they're planning maybe three hearings on the deal. Where do those go? You know, the controller said he's looking for some answers from EDC. We'll see if he gets those and what comes of it. You know, maybe he has some proposed tweaks coming up. One of the most interesting moments to me of the part of the city council hearing that I watch is when I think it was city council speaker Corey Johnson directly asked the Amazon representatives, will you just give the subsidies back? You don't really need it. Why don't you just commit to to giving them back to the public good? And they didn't directly use the words no. They more 
Moore said, uh, you know, these are as of right and they also come with, uh, you know, job creation numbers. They're not just totally given. They, they have, uh, you know, there's metrics attached to them. But I don't know if that conversation, you know, if they keep banging the drum, there's not some tweaks that might be made to this deal. That's a very good point. I think that many of the activist and advocate left that are opposed to the deal are opposed to Amazon, don't want them here, raises bigger questions about the presence, increasing presence of tech in the city and the political ramifications of that. But I think the establishment, Democratic establishment office holders are much more likely to to surrender or to accept the deal um, if the subsidies are reduced or eliminated and if other steps are taken. Um, so we should bring on our next guest. Why not?